An honorable profession is brought to you by OpenCounter.com. OpenCounter builds tools for local governments to deliver permits and licenses online. Their portals make complex permitting simple, which lowers transaction costs, increases transparency, and empowers economic development. Check out OpenCounter.com to see what they can do for your community. Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now on the Santa Cruz County Board of Supervisors. Check out some of our past episodes with guests like Washington State Lieutenant Governor Cyrus Habib, Emily Kane of Emily's List, Stephen Reed, the first African-American mayor of Montgomery, Alabama, and dozens of amazing leaders at the state and local level. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. And if you like what you hear, please tell your friends. We're trying to bring sanity to politics in an insane era. We need all the help we can get. Today, I'm having an important conversation on race, policing, and generational changes in politics with Tennessee Senator Rumesh Akberi. Rumesh is a 36-year-old phenom. She's a Memphis native who's an Iranian African-American lawyer and legislator. She got started in politics opposing a plan to close schools and has risen quickly to being elected to the state legislature in 2013 and to the state Senate in 2018. She is now advising Joe Biden on criminal justice reform. Now, more than ever, we need to hear her voice. Senator Ramesh Akbari, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Thank you. Happy to be here. <laughs> These are crazy times. Let me just first check in and see how you uh, and your city of Memphis are doing. You know, it seems like this uh, year 2020 is just a year that uh, keeps handing us challenges uh, from the COVID crisis and certainly uh, from the emerging uh, discussions that we're now having in in the wake of the George Floyd uh, murder. Uh, So I I think that, one, it's just a time of great adversity, uh, but two, I'm hoping that it will bring us together and we'll actually continue to have real conversations uh, that will actually address meaningful reform. Uh, That's what it's about for me. But we're doing well. We're trying to just keep moving forward and, of course, uh, uh, just just, uh, totally aware of, of what's going on and not trying to move on. In this moment, we're trying to feel it and and change. How do you begin that change? There's people, uh, there's obviously uh, marches and protests, but you have to try to translate that into change in your city, in your state. Um, And now you're uh, helping the vice president think through some of those changes. What do you see as the first steps uh, to begin addressing the, the the many issues that that we have in policing and race in this country? Well, I think that's the difficult part, honestly. But I would first say we have to acknowledge that there is a problem. Uh, Too often, even folks that I serve with in the legislature, they're unwilling to admit that there are disparities that are leading to unarmed African-American men and women being killed. Uh, There are policies that are leading to the use of force against African-American communities. Um, and so for me, one, we have to acknowledge that it's an issue. And then two, it's going to take 
multiple layers of efforts. I know there's a movement around defunding the police departments, and I think what that really means is a reallocation of resources. The same way that we were quick to militarize police departments and provide federal incentives for that, we've got to kind of move in the opposite direction. Uh, So investing in meaningful de-escalation training and policies, investing in use of force um, policies that really are going to protect those that the police departments are serving. And certainly the third point I would say is we have to have implicit bias training. If you have things that you're holding in your subconscious that affect how you operate and how you kind of function as a law enforcement officer, you've got to have training to recognize that so that you can change. Uh, So that for me, those are some big things, certainly uh, dealing with it on a state level and then, of course, in correspondence with my local government where the police department actually is um, under the control of the city. And then, of course, with the Biden campaign through this task force, I think that we've had some really important conversations. And I'm hoping in the next few weeks, our recommendations will really reflect, one, what the nation is crying out and asking for. Uh, Enough is enough. You know, we can't have another George Floyd. We can't have another Ahmaud Aubrey. We can't have another Breonna Taylor or Michael Gardner or any Eric Gardner or any of those people. So, uh, Mike Brown situation or Tamir Rice, I could go on and on. Um, and I think this time it's different. Uh, you see folks from all across the spectrum out demonstrating. You've seen conservatives condemn what's happened with the um, George Floyd situation. Uh, so it's not an easy fix. Certainly, if it was, we'd already have done it. Uh, but we have to acknowledge the impact of you know, slavery, Jim Crow, and then systemic racism. We don't acknowledge it. We can't fix it. And so if... Speaking to the people who are out in the streets right now, not only in this country, but around the world, from where you sit, where do you see as the short-term opportunity wins? And then what do you see as the big challenges going forward that that we're all going to need to address? That's a great question. One, I think that those who are out in the streets demonstrating, they're raising international awareness around why people are out demonstrating, number one, which is really big. Um, I think in number two, which is important because we are in an election cycle right now. And I know a lot of folks feel like, you know, I voted and it, and it did make a difference, but it does. I won my first political election by 100 votes. It does make a difference. And when you have people in elected office, whether on a federal, state or local level uh, that understand the issues around police brutality, community policing and then just injustice in general and are willing to make those type of policy changes, you're going to have to have that. If you don't have people in positions where they can make policy changes, it's not going to work. So in the short term, I'd say, first of all, keep demonstrating. Just wear a mask because COVID-19 is still out here. Um, And two, keep forcing folks to have these difficult conversations. Never would we have imagined the NFL would apologize. Now, they haven't specifically reached out to Colin Kaepernick, but they have acknowledged that there is a horrible, you know, their response was horrible. Um, And I think you've seen corporations doing the same thing. So it's pushing the conversation. But I say keep demonstrating, keep raising awareness, and then have a list of of changes that you think can be made, uh, and, and then contact your state and local and federally elected officials to force them to do it. And by voting, that's the easiest way to get people to pay attention to you. When you have a voting block that can get someone in or out of office, automatically that brings you back into their consciousness. And uh, you've done this, I mean, uh, 
previously in terms of building a bipartisan coalition to try to address a difficult issue that's obviously informed by bias and race, which is to reform the juvenile justice system in your state. Um, can you talk about what you what you did in that regard and what you've learned and how you think it might be applicable to what's um, what's going on uh, right now around reforming police practices? Certainly. I think that, I mean, again, I'm in the super minority, so I always have to get creative. And also I'm a twin by birth, so I, I think I've always had to build a coalition or reach uh, some sort of compromise. So that's number one. Um, but <laughs> I've never <laughs> heard really, of that as good political training yes, before, but that makes yeah, sense. It is. It is. You know, from the womb to the room, we have had to negotiate. <laughs> but um, I, it, it's about building coalitions, right? Focusing on what we want, what our end result is, obviously we have different ways on how we want to get there. For me, I say, well, I'm a bleeding heart liberal. I want to make sure that people have second chances. If the worst thing that they've done does not define the rest of their lives. More of my colleagues across the aisle might be more inclined to be helpful because the cost of incarceration in Tennessee reached a billion dollars, which that's pretty significant in a 38 to $39 billion budget. Uh, so just trying to kind of figure out how what what can make it make sense for the person that you need to get on board uh, and then put aside personal differences, focus on the issues. I might not agree with you on like 90% of the things that we're going to talk about, but that 10%, if we can find some room in there to build a coalition and actually get something passed, that's the area I'm going to focus on. I'm not going to be so blinded by the fact that I can't get you to the table on the other issues. So that's what I think an incremental change. It, it Nothing happens overnight. I'm not, I know Dr. King said justice delayed is justice denied. I'm not talking about delaying it in that sense, but I am saying if you can take incremental steps consistently, the end result really can be something that is significant. And tell us a little bit about sort of what the politics are like in Tennessee for those of us that that aren't there and sort of how you're trying to navigate and push progressive issues there from a super minority. And do you see... Do you see that changing anytime soon? Well, okay. So I am in the state Senate. I'm the Senate Democratic Caucus Chairwoman. Of the 33 members we have in the Senate, uh, five are Democrats. Uh, In the House of the 99 members, 25 are Democrats. So we are deep within a super minority. Now, I do not think that – I think we've gone to as low as we can go, honestly. I don't think there's a way that the districts can be gerrymandered. I mean, knock on wood – uh, they could reduce our, our seats even further. But we've identified about three seats we think that we have some room to flip. And that's what we're trying to do, just seat by seat. Uh, and certainly we have some good candidates in mind. But it is difficult because you have to build common ground. Like we just had a debate today on the House floor about removing the celebration of the holiday for Nathan Bedford Forrest, the first Grand Wizard of the KKK. And it's hard when you do not have members in your party. You just don't have the numbers and you're not going to be able to, we have not been able to change the hearts and minds of those on the other side. Um, Certainly when you're trying to push for other progressive issues, you have to find something that has bipartisan support. I've noticed that good public schools and criminal justice reform and economic development does. And so those are really the lanes that I try and operate in. And also my community needs it. Uh, So it like kind of worked out together. But for me, being in a super minority, the most important thing is attacking problems and not people. Uh, Because if you attack people, it's kind of a non-starter on conversations. Uh, You have some folks. And for me, I represent uh, 
people who need to see results. They have legislate. We have legislation that needs to be passed. But there are different parts of my district that are in extreme poverty. So I can't be up here just to prove a point. I have to be up here to actually get meaningful policy through. But there are some folks within our party who can. And so everybody has their role. Um, but it's it's definitely difficult. And we're doing everything we can to try and rebalance those numbers. Uh, but it's hard in Tennessee. And also, I should say, because of gerrymandering, the legislature is really not representative of the state. While we are a red state, about 45% of, 44%, I think, of the population voted for a Democrat in the statewide race. It's just that the way our districts are gerrymandered, it's very difficult for us to realize those in actual seats. That's an incredible delta between 44% to uh, five uh, to five seats. That's um, that's that's a lot of gerrymandering. So, oh, yeah. when you have um, people in your community in the streets and they're pushing and they're angry and frustrated at the speed of change, um, and you don't have a lot of levers to pull, uh, how are you trying to uh, to to have people not lose hope? in the streets and then also secondarily not only in your community but you've been uh played a key role in recruiting uh young people women women people of color uh to run for office so how do you have those conversations when people see see the system as being you know ineffective uh maybe at at worst uh or slow at best that you know that is that is difficult. One, I still have hope. Um, so in my discussions with folks, I kind of try and put them on that level. You know, even though it doesn't happen as quickly as we'd like, there is still room for change. So we always shoot for the moon, and then we usually will come up with a compromise uh, that works out. Like for instance, around um, expungement, that was a big thing where we were able to get bipartisan support, um, and we didn't get everything we wanted. We as far as expansion of eligible offenses, but we got a number of them. And so communicating that and really, you know, showing how that has impacted folks' lives does make a difference. Uh, But a lot of people all the way to the other end of the spectrum, and certainly those who have not really had to deal with politicians or elected office, um, definitely feel like it's too slow. But I think one, just continue to maintain contact and conversation and showing, like letting them be a part of the process because this is a people's house. It's a people's chamber. It's not, we represent the people. Um, So I think that's the most important thing I try and keep in mind and certainly in my communications. And there's a role for an activist. There's a role for an elected official. Everybody has their lane that they operate in, but we can operate together. And I, I think that that's, we've been able to be successful in Nashville and in Memphis, honestly. Um, And I think a lot of folks are recognizing, hey, they're in a super minority and they're still able to get some things done and that's what we have to focus on. And then more pressure is put on our local governments because like in in Tennessee, our cities are blue. Um, So there's no reason why certain progressive policies cannot get through through their different legislative bodies. So I think a lot of pressure comes there as well. But I'm still hopeful. I'm not discouraged just yet. I have discouraging days, just discouraging moments. <laughs> but I, I still know why I'm here. And I have to, you know, kind of hold on to that because otherwise you'll just want to burn down the building and run down the street. So <laughs> yeah, there, there are more discouraging moments and days uh, these days than there have been in a long time. But hopefully oh, yes. uh, well, 
the the arc of the universe is bending. Um, so talk about your decision to to spend your time in these um, hopeful and sometimes uh, not so hopeful days. You're uh, a talented. Uh, person you're an attorney um you could be doing a lot of things how did you find your way into public service so i have a long um little story so i'll try and make it brief listen i found out i was a democrat when i was in second grade the summer before third grade i know that sounds crazy but i remember having a conversation with my parents and i was like oh i want president bush to win and they were like nope no no honey we're we're democrats we want bill clinton to win and i said well why and my mother said, uh, Democrats care about people. And that kind of stuck with me. And I was also the little nerd who read every book she could find and then reread them. And I remember when Harold Ford Jr. got elected to Congress, I was in sixth grade. And I was like, man, he's so young. He's a young attorney. And I knew I wanted to be an attorney. And I'm like, that would be pretty neat, not just to, you know, to be able to make laws. I think that's pretty cool, right? So that's still just immature sixth grader. Um, fast forward, went to law school, got out, started working for the family business. And I had a mentor who was state representative, and I was working with her on a local um, issue related to closure of a fire department in a community, and then the voter registration campaign was planning on being mentored by her. So we came to the Capitol in June of 2013, my first time coming to the Capitol, and we passed by a hearing room, and she said, um, you know, next January, you can you can shadow me, and you can kind of see how we do things. Um, and then my predecessor in the House ended up passing away of pancreatic cancer, and I my mentor asked if I wanted to run for that office, and seven of us ran. I won by 100 votes, and so that January, instead of being her shadow, I actually was being sworn into the legislature. And so for me, it's always been taking a problem, trying to build a coalition, and getting it solved. That's a, that's what gets keeps me going, and seeing how it can impact someone's life directly or to break down kind of the red tape and the confusion and, and the intimidation around state government. Like, for instance, if someone is trying to get their unemployment benefits and we can make a call and cut through all that red tape, or if they're trying to get their, you know, a lot of local issues and state issues kind of overlap, which is why I always try and have uh, good coalitions built with my school board members in the district I represent, my city council and my county commission members, uh, because they might not know. Uh, it might be a federal issue. It might be a county or city issue and being able to connect them with someone so they don't have to call around and, and it just, it makes life easier for people. And so that's how, that's why I'm committed to it. And I always tell folks, listen, I'm going to, I won't run for reelection the moment I stop enjoying it and I stop feeling like I'm making a difference. And that's true because it's not like the legislature, like you said, it does not, it does not pay a lot of money. It actually generally will lose you money. So you have to be in it for the right reasons. Because quite frankly, if you're making a lot of money in an elected body, you're probably going to go to jail soon because you're probably breaking some laws. Um, so, so, so that's what keeps me going. Um, honestly, there are those days where, you know, like, I think the day that was the worst for me was the day that um, in-state tuition for undocumented students failed on the House floor by one vote. I mean, we actually had Democrats who voted against it. And that, to me, was just awful. Um, and then when the bill was brought back the following year to hear the hateful remarks of my colleagues, I've never cried in committee and I just could not. I just I could not make remarks because I just it, it hurt me to it was dehumanizing these young adults who all they wanted was a chance. <laughs> and um, 
that that's really those so those discouraging awful moments also give me fuel to say we have to keep going we have to represent people who don't normally have a voice at the table and for whatever reason i seem to be getting lots of seats at tables where i'm the only democrat the only black person the only woman only person from west tennessee and so for me i'm trying to take advantage of that and make sure that i'm actually representing the people who sent me there and how was it finding your voice? Uh, you at that point you were like thirty years old, right? When you were first elected, yeah, twenty nine, <laughs> twenty nine, and um, and you're uh, of Iranian and African American uh, descent. Mm-hmm. You're, uh, I imagine there aren't uh, there are very few other legislators who look like you or have your life right. experience. Um, you know, you from going from a shadow to a legislator. Uh, is a big, big jump. How did you? How did you find your footing? And and you. I mean, it's and it's been remarkable uh, the way that you've taken um, a leadership role in the legislature and in national politics uh, in yeah. a relatively short period of time. So tell me about that emergence as a leader. Well, I think I just tried to focus on the work. Um, and I found that because of that, I was I would get respect from my colleagues, and I think also just being prepared. And for me, it was just I want to know what I'm talking about. Um, and I also think again that goes to the negotiation piece with having a twin. Um, I'm used to there having to be some sort of compromise always. Um, and so I th- and I think also again my policy of attacking policies and not people has gone a long way. But honestly, it was about the work. Like even when I was involved with the Clinton campaign, when I first, they first contacted me and I first started holding events, they didn't realize I was an elected official uh, because they thought I was just a grassroots organizer because I, I wanted to be done. I'm not asking for a position. I'm not asking for some sort of appointment. I want that person to be in office because I believe in them. And I think that's the same approach I've taken in the legislature. I want this to be accomplished. And so that's why I'm going to work on it and work for it. And I find that the recognition will come. It's not something that you focus on. And another rule that I have is don't drink your own Kool-Aid. <laughs> like, <laughs> just don't do it. When you start drinking your own Kool-Aid, then you just, you're not kind to people and you don't respect their time or anything else. And it's just, it's ugly. You become somebody that you said you would never be. And that's, I tried. And also I have a family that grounds me always. Like again, twin sister. Okay. Like I might come home from a massive discussion on, uh, you know, a $40 billion budget. And I just presented a check for a million dollars. And she's like, what are we having for dinner? What are you going to cook? You know? So, <laughs> or did you take the dogs out? So, <laughs> so yeah, I think, uh, just staying humble is always helpful uh, as well. <laughs> but, and, and again, I just, I like it. I feel like it's just, um, it's it's something that there's opportunity for change. And again, that, that to me is a big deal. And then, of course, um, you always get the, like, I, I think I posted something on Instagram this morning. I once had a, a lobbyist tell me that I was a credit to my race, which I thought, oh, my goodness, did you really just say that to me? Or you're so articulate. You know, you, you get all those micro and macro aggressions. But again, I focus on I'm here for the work. I don't have to take any of these people home with me. You know, I have great friends across the aisle and, and on my side of the aisle. But again, we don't have to be friends. We just have to be colleagues and we have to be cordial. So uh, try and focus on that. That is, uh, that must be easier said than done uh, when when people are saying that. And I know you've also, there was, uh, you've also been uh, 
tagged as a uh, as a Muslim representative, and you're getting, uh, even though you're not, um, but right. you've taken a, a really courageous stand of saying, it doesn't matter if I am or I'm not, uh, I'm trying to serve, but it's, you know, you're facing uh, discrimination from a lot of different angles. Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. It was when I first got elected. That's what they were all trying to figure out. I think the press was like, "Have we just elected the first Muslim to the state house?" And I was like, "No, but if I was, it's not a problem." No, I actually went to a Southern Baptist church, which throws them all off. Um, particularly one. The, the clerk of the house asked me about the cross that I was wearing. He was just so confused. And I'm like, this is a cross my mother gave me for Christmas. He's like, but I thought I was like, and I was so ready. I could not wait to give this answer because I knew somebody was going to ask. I was like, are you talking about the cross that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was sacrificed on so that we all might have everlasting life? And he was like, oh, like, <laughs> like mouth dropped open. And I just, I couldn't wait. I was like, now go spread that message. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I'm like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't matter who you love. It doesn't matter who you worship. Are you here to serve the people? That's it. Let it go. I mean, I'm not going to put my push my beliefs on anyone any more than I want people to push their beliefs on me. But I did have a, a lot of fun messing with folks on that one. <laughs> it's crazy. Crazy town. Uh, so... You've uh, stepping out of Tennessee for a second. Uh, you spoke at the D- at the DNC at the national um, conference, and um, you've now advising uh, on the task force, advising Vice President Biden. How do you think the Democratic Party is is dealing with this crisis, with a uh, 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 somebody who's uh, acting as a you know, with fascist and divisive tendencies uh, in the White House, uh, you know, as a leader of the party, what do you what do you see? Well, I do think that um, it's just such a such a contrast, and just going from having someone like President Obama in office to having uh, Donald Trump, who is just who does not seek to unify, does not seek to comfort or console, no matter what circumstance we're going through, and certainly. We find ourselves in a position with the COVID crisis where the entire world has been brought to its knees. And then certainly the emerging issues and discussions that we're trying to have about police brutality and equality. And I am, I'm, I'm proud of how the Democratic uh, candidate, how Joe Biden, Vice President Biden is handling it. Certainly um, our task force, it's been very encouraging, um, the types of conversations we've had around criminal justice reform, the recommendations that we're going to make. We're not done yet. We have several more meetings left, several more hours of, you know, discussing and debating and kind of trying to put forth the best product. Uh, but it, it, it reminded me of what was lost when the current occupant came into the White House and what possibilities we have um, moving forward. So I just... I, I just, every time I hear him speak or do something, I think that we're being spoofed. And then I have to remember, no, this is actually the president of the United States who has picked fights with our traditional allies, who has put white supremacists against peaceful protesters, who does not believe and did not believe that the COVID-19 crisis was a significant one and still refuses to wear a mask, which in turn his followers won't wear a mask. They politicize wearing a mask in the middle of a global pandemic. I just, so I... 
I'm happy uh, with the direction that Vice President Biden is going in. He has reached out to the Floyd family. He has continued to do virtual events. He's trying to take into consideration all of the feedback that has been presented by those who are demonstrating. Um, and he seems to be trying to unite as opposed to divide. And that, to me, is the most important thing. So uh, I have to ask, uh, what's, what's next for you? Uh, as you start to think about how, as you said, you can have fun and have an impact, um, how do you think about your your future? Well, right now, uh, fortunately, I do not have to run for re-election after having had to run in a special in 13, uh, full in 14, 16, and 18. Oh. <laughs> so, right. It was just, it's awful. So being in the Senate, you can run every four years. I don't have to run again until 2022. Right now, I'm the caucus chair, so I'm focused on getting more Democrats elected aggressively. I mean, we'll see what happens. I never close doors that haven't opened, and I also don't want to pin all my uh, success or my uh, level of achievement in my mind on a particular office. Like, as long as I can serve and be effective, I'm going to kind of move into that direction. But right now, I'm concentrating on being the best state senator I can be um, and getting some more folks up here to help me because it's awful. <laughs> And what, so what, what do you say to, to folks who are, who are in the streets and they look at legislative bodies, whether at the state, local or federal level, and they don't see a lot of people who look like them? Um, how, how do they begin to engage to, to change the to change the system or to, to be the system? Well, I certainly think running for office is a big deal. Um, and if you're not the type of person that wants to run for office, finding a candidate, doing your research, finding one that supports the ideals that you support and supporting them as a candidate is a huge thing, too. And then also continue to recognize the power of your voice and through demonstrating. If you look at what's happened in Virginia with their shift or some of the things that Reverend Barber was able to do in, in the legislature where he's from, it, it was from folks just saying enough is enough. Uh, so don't be discouraged. Know that this process is not easy. It's not quick. If it was easy to change, everyone would be doing it. Um, so stay plugged in and, and know that you can serve in any in, in capacities that you couldn't even imagine. If it's not on a state level, look at a local level. Look at school board. Look at city council. And if you don't want to run for office, support those who do because that's how you can make real change. And certainly vote. Tell your people to vote, vote, vote. Um, and and hold your elected officials accountable once they win. Uh, that's good advice, and hopefully everyone uh, and their brothers and sisters takes that uh, takes that to heart. In terms of, and it's amazing to show how much crisis uh, and chaos we're in right now. That um, we're now a half hour into the conversation, and we haven't talked about how COVID is impacting uh, <laughs> your community and your state. Um, so, to, you know, how is the pandemic uh, impacting Memphis, and uh, and sort of what do you see uh, going forward, and what are your needs as a community going forward? Well, I, our mayor fortunately shut things down much earlier than the state. I think the big cities did. And even once the state made moves to reopen, they allowed the big cities, the six largest counties, who have their own health departments to kind of phase things in on their own. The thing is, though, with the reopening of businesses, we have seen an uptick 
in cases. I think the governor actually just made an announcement earlier today about it, and certainly in our cities and uh, counties. And I think there will be a move to try and blame those who are demonstrating, but we're still really seeing the effects of Memorial Day and just being back in business. Um, I hope that people don't have to have a significant loss before they take this seriously. Uh, but I know that our our small businesses are suffering. I'm on a task force where we've tried to give them some sort of relief. I know that people are struggling and don't have employment, and fortunately, uh, they have additional dollars from the federal government that has helped. Uh, but we're looking at budget shortfalls, not only on a state level, what we're encountering, but on a local level, um, which I think a lot of, especially in a state like Tennessee, where tourism is such a big part of the income that we generate. Um, Memphis and Nashville are some of our leads in that. And I don't think anyone really feels comfortable traveling right now. So that's that's kind of what we're looking at, what resources will look like down the line, what additional support will be needed. And certainly, I mean, our hospital capacity, our PPE, our PPE capacity is is good. We get an update every every day about it. But, you know, we folks need to take this seriously. And what, what I want is a, a medical treatment protocol that is effective. Um, but I mean, I'm sure everyone wants that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we just have to be careful and cautious and not allow everything else that's going on to make us kind of turn things down. And so I'm actually a part of a coalition we're forming. We're called Mask Up Memphis. We've actually formed it, and we're giving out 20,000 masks, and we've partnered up with the city of Memphis. It's myself and the minority leader in the House, uh, Karen Camper, partnered with the city of Memphis, the Transportation Authority, and the Memphis Grizzlies, and that's one of the things we've done to try and, you know, help do our part as well. Yeah, as as you talk about it, um, you know, Memphis and Nashville are, are a national resource for music, um, but concerts and gatherings uh, are, you know, some of the last to come back along with this, you know, the tradition of sports, both collegiate and professional uh, in your state. So the impacts must be significant, not only on your budgets, but on sort of the cultural life of, of Tennessee. Mm-hmm. It is. It's difficult. I mean, we are, we have live music all the way across the state and certainly in Memphis and Nashville, um, and you to see these places closed down to pass by Beale Street, which is in my district, and see places that are shuttered, or to go down Broadway in Nashville and see the honky tonks closed, uh, it's definitely it's definitely something different. And um, it's it's also difficult because you have folks who are kind of a part of the gig economy who are not whose lives have fallen apart. Um, and so I'm happy that our state did approve their ability to p- file for unemployment compensation. And also, if they're acting as small businesses, they will get a part of some of our CARES dollars that we've designated for small businesses. But it's difficult. And I just, I'm hoping and knowing that once this is all over, we're just going to bounce back and um, we're going to be more thankful and appreciative for all these things we've taken for granted for so long. I don't know that I'll ever turn down a party uh, invitation ever (laughs) again. Like, oh, yeah, nope, I need to fly somewhere. Let's do it. I don't know that I'll complain about dealing with the airport ever again. So, <laughs> yeah, let's hope and let's hope that's sooner rather than later. Exactly. So I just want to thank you for your leadership. Um, it's been uh, I, on the national level. It's you're, you're always uh, offering really thoughtful uh, and engaging and inspiring approaches to uh to so many difficult issues, and I wish you 
best of luck um, as you try to both navigate the many challenges you're facing um, in your state and then and then as as all of us in the in the nation. Well, thank you, definitely. Definitely, and, you know, happy to continue to serve. <laughs> well, thank you, and, uh, yeah, and hopefully we'll be hopping on a plane and seeing each other at the next uh, New Deal conference sometime soon. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's get back back in person. Right. Um, so thank you, and, uh, and please stay safe and stay healthy and keep doing the good work. Definitely. Thank you. You too. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcast. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. <laughs>